Hello, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome back. This week is Parshas Yisrael, and we're going to continue talking about the halachas of cooking on Shabbos. And we're still talking about the halachas of cooking on Erev Shabbos. So last week, <clears throat> we learned about what are the two things that Hazal didn't allow us to do on Erev Shabbos. One was leaving uncooked food on an open fire because they were worried that we will adjust the flame to hasten the cooking process. So this is called shahiyah, leaving food on the fire. And we learned that there are three ways to avoid this problem, this isser. One, if the food is at least half cooked, then it's not a problem, but preferably fully cooked. And second is if the flame is covered, like by a blech, uh, or, or it's a little foil. And third is if you put a piece of raw meat into the food immediately before Shabbos. So there, again, there's no problem that you're, we're not worried you're going to hasten the cooking process because it won't be ready anyway. By the night and by the morning it'll be ready regardless. So in that situation we weren't worried. So there's three ways to avoid the isser. If the food is at least half cooked, preferably fully cooked. If the flame is covered. Or if you put a raw piece of meat into the food. The second thing that Chazal prohibited Erev Shabbos, the second thing which you're not allowed to do Erev Shabbos, was wrapping food in something which produces heat. Now, in those days, this was more relevant as they did cover their pots in various different materials. They would like bury it in sand to keep it warm. Nowadays, if we wrap it in a towel Erev Shabbos in the summer, because we don't leave our oven on, that's permitted because the towel doesn't pr- produce heat. This is called Hatmana, and Hatmana essentially is permitted on Erev Shabbos, but the Hatmana that's not permitted is when the, you wrap it in something which is a heat source. And by the way, on Shabbos itself, you aren't allowed to do any kind of hatzmana. So on Shabbos itself, you're not allowed to wrap it even in a towel. Like if you take it off the oven on Shabbos and then you want to wrap it, you can't do that on Shabbos. But every Shabbos, you can wrap it in a towel, but not in something which produces heat. So how is this isser relevant today where we don't generally wrap things in, uh, in a heat-producing material? So it is applicable in a number of situations because of a concept that is if you wrap something up completely and then you put it on top of a different heat source then it's considered as if the wrapping itself is producing the heat for example something which is very very applicable we do all the time if you wrap challahs totally in silver foil which means you totally wrap them up in silver foil and then you put them on top of a crock pot or on top of a hot plate even though you did it Arab Shabbos this might be a problem because you're wrapping them up, which is hatmana, and then you're putting them on a heat source. <clears throat> this is known as hatmana b'davar of havel. You're wrapping in something which produces heat, and that is prohibited even erev Shabbos. Now, some places can do allow this. So, if you've seen this being done, that's perhaps the re- I mean could be ignorance, but it also there are there are places that allow it because they view silver foil not as much as a wrapping, but they kind of look at, look at it like a pan or, or like a 9 by 13, and that's not subject to this whole problem of hatmana, and you're allowed, because you're allowed to leave a pot on a heat source. But others say, no, you can't compare it to a pot. It's wrapping it up, and it wraps it, you wrap it up totally. And if you wrap it up totally and put it on the top of a crock pot or put it on top of a hot plate um, or, or, or even leave it in the oven, 
it's a question of hatmana v'davra meisat havel. So therefore, in order to avoid this problem, what's best to do is leave the silver foil partially open on top, so that it doesn't totally wrap up the challah. Now, you have to leave it significantly open. You can't just like open up an inch by an inch square. You have to open up most of the top, and this way it's not considered fully wrapped. Once it's not fully wrapped, then there's no problem about tamana anymore, and then you can put it on top of your crock pot, hot plate, or leave it in the oven. Now, this is applicable on Shabbos as well because we learn when we will, we will be learning in Hashem in the coming weeks that it's permitted to put something on top of a crock pot on Shabbos and we'll learn about you know how yes and how no but let's say in the take in the case of challahs you're allowed to put a challah on top of a crock pot even on Shabbos but again the same thing you're not allowed to wrap it up completely and put it on the crock pot even out of Shabbos and certainly not on Shabbos so let's say on Shabbos you want to well, heat up, warm up some chicken to serve by your day meal. So you have these chicken cutlets and you want to wrap them up in silver foil and put them on top of a crock pot or on some other heat-producing source, that's not okay because they're fully wrapped. Again, what you have to do is you have to leave it open on the top so that it's not as fully wrapped and then you can avoid this problem. Sfaradim are actually more stringent about this because the BCI safe doesn't allow it to be wrapped at all when there's a heat source, and they should consult with a Sephardic Rav to ascertain exactly what the minag is. I didn't get a chance to find out. I know there's different minhagim when it comes to these things among Sephardim. So this halacha might be different for Sephardim. But for Ashkenazim, just to make, make sure it's at least unwrapped on the top, and then you, run, you don't have this problem. Another application of this is what some people do with their urns their hot water urn, sometimes it's not hot enough, like the kinds that are not pumped, they're not insulated, and they don't retain heat all that well. And if you have one, you'll know what I mean. You take a coffee, and as soon as you you, uh, add milk, it's already lukewarm. So they have this kind of slip cover that fits over the urn and insulates it and actually keeps it a lot hotter. But if that slip cover totally covers the urn, again, you have this problem of hatmana and the davar hamaisat because it's producing heat and it's wrapped. So if you do own such a slipcover, you have to make sure to roll up the bottom so that it doesn't cover the own urn totally, only partially. One thing that is permitted, though, is, for example, many people wrap up kishka or they wrap up kogel and silver foil and they put it in the chalant. So, and you do that Arab Shabbos. Now, this is not considered hatmana because the liquid of the chalant seeps into the kishka and the kogel. So we just view it, even though it's wrapped in silver foil, we just look at it like it's one big stew and not two separate items. And therefore, it's permitted. But it's important to remember this is only permitted Arab Shabbos. It's not permitted to be done on Shabbos for a variety of reasons, which again, Mitz Hashem will be getting to in the coming weeks. The final application of this question of Atman of Adabra and of Havel, very interesting, is actually about a crockpot itself. You may be familiar, there's two kinds of crockpots. The conventional type of crockpot is this like large medical re- metal receptacle, which gets all hot, and the ceramic pot fits snugly inside the metal receptacle with only the top part of the crockpot and the lid being above the metal. Now, you may have noticed that there's a more Jewish brand of crockpot, which the metal, it's a metal pot, and it sits on a flat metal surface. And it's kind of like a mini hot plate. It doesn't, the pot doesn't fit into anything. And the reason why this second kind was invented and introduced was because of a halachic shiloh some Paiskim had with the conventional kind of crockpot, and that is hatmana. 
Why is there a problem with Hatzmana? Because the crackpot is totally ensconced in this medical, metal receptacle, which is a heat source. Now, you may wonder, but the tap is uncovered, and that generally helps for the problem of Atmana, so they, that's already getting a little bit more academic. For some reason, you can't apply that rationale here. So this is a big subject of controversy. It started many years ago, like 20, 25 years ago, and it's been back and forth. So you might have noticed one of three things. You might notice, and you yourself might own, the conventional hot pot, a crack pot and just use it as is, which is totally okay. Like I said, it's a, many, many pipes can allow it. Many pipes can armature it. So there's, you, can, you can safely use it as is. Other people you might have noticed add some balls of silver foil to the floor of that, that medical, metal receptacle so that it raises the crack pot a little higher so it's not totally ensconced. That helps. And third, you can buy the other kind of crack pot, which has the flat, and you might, next time you go buy a crack pot, you might choose to dafka buy that kind in order to uh, avoid this halachic shaila. So it's, it's a, the, point, the main point here being that it's worth it, worthwhile to buy that kind of crack pot if you're in the, in the market for a new crack pot, so to avoid this question of Hatmana. So again, we discussed today the halachas of Hatmana on Arab Shabbos, wrapping something Arab Shabbos. You can wrap something in a towel. That's not a problem. On Arab Shabbos, not on Shabbos, but on Arab Shabbos, you can wrap something in a towel. But on, uh, on Arab Shabbos, if you wrap something and then put it on top of a heat source, that's a problem. So wrapping up challah totally and putting it on a crack pot or wrapping up chicken and putting it on top of the crack pot will be a problem. You have to leave it slightly uh, open on top. And likewise, if you take your urn and cover it with a uh, slip cover or anything like that, that also would be hatmana unless you leave it slightly uncovered, and this way you avoid, avoid this problem. This week, we know, it's called Parshas Yisrael. And the majority of the Parsha, as we know, very famously, is the most important event in Jewish and world history is Matan Torah. So it's strange, then, that it should be called Parshas Yisrael, named after Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law. And it's not even certain that he, the beginning of the Parsha, which talks about him, occurred before Matan Torah or after Matan Torah. It's, it's a disagreement in the Medrash when exactly it happened. And if he actually came after Matan Torah, why does the story precede Matan Torah? And regardless, why is the whole Parsha, which is the Parsha of Matan Torah, why is it named after Yisrael? It's a boot. It's so interesting. Why is it so important? Now, the story about Yisrael in the beginning of the parasha is that Yisra comes and meets Mesh Rabbeinu and he's welcomed by Mesh Rabbeinu and they make a big um, suda in his honor and then the next day he observes how Mesh Rabbeinu is judging Kali Yisrael and Mesh Rabbeinu is doing it alone judging Kali Yisrael from the morning until night and the whole Kali Yisrael is there and is standing online to wait their turn to be judged and to learn something from Mesh Rabbeinu and this bothered him and it bothered him because he felt it was diminishing the honor of Kali Yisrael, that should have to stand all day, it was humiliating for them. So he criticized Maish Rabbeinu, and he gave constructive criticism. And it was a very successful constructive criticism. He, he suggested a whole method of appointing judges, a whole system of appointing judges of higher level courts and higher level courts until you reach Maish Rabbeinu. And this way, you'll be able to do it. Maish Rabbeinu consulted with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said it's a good idea. And then they instead, they put his idea into effect, and then the Torah goes on to talk about Matan Torah. That's the whole beginning of Pashas Yisra, and that's why it's called Pashas Yisra. So why is this whole story so important 
to call the whole parsha and to precede the story of Matan Torah. So Rabbi Ruchan Levavitz and Das Torah explains that learning how to accept criticism, learning to rethink decision, decisions and to admit mistakes is crucial to accepting the Torah. He says we'll always make mistakes. And truly, that's the only way we can successfully learn Torah. If we're prepared to learn, make a mistake, and that's the way we'll learn the right way, but only if we're ready to backtrack and take back our, our previous held notions and learn the correct way. Yisrael demonstrated something about the Torah, and the truth is it changed world history from that time forward because although the world is kind of there now, it was many years before the majority of the world adopted it because Moshe Rabbeinu was a supreme role, ruler of the Jews. He had the status of a king, both practically and halakhically. And Yisrael questioned him. Kings weren't in the practice of being questioned. Kings receive advice if they request it. But in the Torah world, there's no such thing. If a king did something that was halakhically questionable, he was challenged and he was challenged by anyone. Yisrael was a ger. He was a convert. He had no status in Kalal Yisrael. But he was just as good as anybody else and just as had the same power as anybody else to challenge Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader, the supreme leader of the whole Kalal Yisrael. Generally, the Nevi'im were the one who were tasked with this to rebuke kings because of their fearlessness. But we find that Yerubim ben Nevat, who was not a Navi, he challenged Shlomo HaMelech, who was the wisest man alive and ruled over the whole civilized world of the time, but he didn't balk, and he criticized Shlomo HaMelech, and because of that, he merited to become a king himself. If a government wasn't following the Torah, it was questioned and could be challenged by any individual. The Jewish government, in that sense, was the freest government possible. Everybody had a voice. Everybody could demand the Torah be followed. And this is what Yisra demonstrated, that that's what the Torah is all about. And that's why the parasha is named after him. His name is Yisra and also Yeser, and it was specifically given to him because he added to the Torah. And this was the, so, such an important lesson for Klai Yisrael to internalize, that even Moshe Rabbeinu himself, the ultimate teacher of the Torah, was open to criticism, accepted criticism, and admitted a mistake. And that was the most important lesson before accepting the Torah. This is one thing that Yerabi Rucham says. But now that we have established that Yisrael went about criticizing Moshe Rabbeinu, we can try to learn a little bit of how it's done, how you can give um, constructive criticism in a productive manner. So let's begin. First of all, Yisrael is referred to as Kohen Midian. He was the priest of Midian. Now that was his occupation before he did tshuva and converted. Now that doesn't seem right. Why would remind everybody of his past where he was an idol worshiper and he was Kaihen Midian when he so bravely left it behind to seek the truth? The Alshach says that this is precisely what the Torah is demonstrating to us. Yisrael was a truth seeker. He tried every idol in search of the truth and he was willing to drop his position, his prestige, and even wealth to cling to the truth. He was Kayan Midian, but now he was a simple convert. Why? Because Yisra was someone who listened. By Yishma Yisra, he heard the same thing that all the other nations in the world heard about Amalek, Kriyat, Yamsuf. Yisra alone chose to convert, to come and become a Jew because he had the courage to accept what he heard. He had the courage to change. He himself 
demonstrated that he accepts criticism. He's willing to change. He's willing to backtrack on his mistakes. The first attribute necessary to successfully give constructive criticism is to be a person who seeks constructive criticism themselves. Only if we're a person who loves the truth, we embrace change, and we welcome criticism when it's helpful, can we be a person who offers criticism as well. That's the only way people who we try to criticize will take us seriously, because we care, and we care about the truth. And they'll believe that it's not just because we want to criticize. Second, Yisra sees a problem. He sees Klai Yisrael that's standing from morning to night, waiting for a turn to speak to Meish Rabbeinu. Yisra finds this to be humiliating for Klai Yisrael. As the Medrash explains, he was demanding the covet of Klai Yisrael and felt that Meish Rabbeinu was diminishing that. Now, for a moment, let's think. What was Meish Rabbeinu's thought process? Rashi reveals it to us in Parshas Devarim. When Moshe Rabbeinu is giving his final criticism to Klai Yisrael, he relates this story that Yisrael gave him this idea, and he says, Klai Yisrael, you listened to Yisrael's suggestion, and you encouraged me to accept it. You said, oh, he's saying good. He has a good idea. Let's do it. And Moshe Rabbeinu was displeased, Rashi explains, because Moshe expected a different reaction from them. They should have said, Who is it better to learn from? From you or from your student? Who do you think we'd rather learn from? Do you think, Moshe, we'd rather learn from your student? We would rather learn from you. Moshe Rabbeinu assumed that Klai Yisrael chose to wait willingly because it's so much better to learn the Torah firsthand from its source, Moshe Rabbeinu. And he was disappointed when they didn't react like this. Nevertheless, Yisrael present, presented another vantage point, that it was diminishing their honor. And this is a discussion between them. This is the two sides. They were both sides that had valid points. Moshe Rabbeinu's vantage point and Yisra's vantage point. So Yisra has this issue, but he doesn't start by challenging Moshe. Later on, he says, It's not good what you're doing. But he doesn't start that way. First, he asks Moshe Rabbeinu to present what he's doing. What is this thing that you're doing? Why are you sitting alone and the whole nation is waiting for you? He questions. He doesn't criticize. He asks Moshe to present his view of what he's doing before he presents his own opinion, which he had already been formed. Moshe presents his view that he's teaching them Tyra and who is better qualified to teach them than the one who heard it straight from Hashem. And he was thinking that this is what Kaishwal themselves preferred. Only after Moshe Rabbeinu presents his view, only then does Yisra begin to present his own opinion. After he has heard Moshe and demonstrated that he cares about what Moshe's approach is. This is step one of offering criticism. Don't begin with criticism. Begin by trying to learn the person's approach, their point of view, and what they want, and what they're thinking. Demonstrate to them that you understand and appreciate what they're trying to do, and the best way to do this is by reflecting it back to them and validating their point of view, at least from their perspective. That's always step number one. Secondly, when Yisra presents his criticism, which was that Moshe Rabbeinu was diminishing Klai Yisrael's honor, that's not even what he says. He doesn't start with that. He says, first, Naval Tibal, you, Moshe, alone will suffer from this approach. You will be worn out. You will be tired out. You can't do it alone. And, again, and he comes back to that again. And he says, Ki it's too difficult for you. You can't do it alone. And in the middle of these two statements where he's addressing that Moshe Rabbeinu himself will suffer, he slips in, Gam ha'am hazeh, you are also tiring out this nation. 
Now, I haven't seen anybody make this point, but it seems obvious that although the point that Yisra disagreed with Moshe Rabbeinu was about Kalah Yisrael, that was his criticism, he's diminishing their honor, that wasn't the way he presented his argument. He presented a lot of different angles, which were not criticisms. He presented the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu would tire from this, which was an observation. It wasn't a criticism. He wasn't saying Moshe wasn't doing a good job. He just said that you can't maintain this. And we learn from here that criticism itself should be clothed with many different garments, which give additional unchallenging reason to create the change. Now, for us, this is very simple because it just makes it easier for us to hear. I don't think that was anything to do with Moshe Rabbeinu, but it was simply respectful to Moshe Rabbeinu, not to challenge him outright, to show that there are other factors at play, that although Moshe Rabbeinu has a valid reason to keep the nation waiting, there are other issues here that Moshe Rabbeinu, yourself, you won't be able to maintain it, and those should be factored in when deciding what's the better way to do this. So the lesson is, is that when presenting criticism, it's not always necessary to gun down the person's approach and be very confrontational. It's always better to demonstrate why your approach is better, it's more helpful, and in the long run will benefit everybody the less confrontational, it's more respectful, it takes the other person's view into account, and thereby is much more effective. When Yisrael does give his plan, he first reaffirms Moshe Rabbeinu's role, as Moshe pictures it, and he explains that in areas of teaching Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu alone will still be the one who teaches what Hashem wants from us. And only after he establishes that does he say, you should appoint from the nation judges, one from ten, one from a hundred, one from every thousand. So only after demonstrating respect for Moshe Rabbeinu's view, finding its place, showing how it can be maintained within a certain framework, does he go on to give his idea of how the workload could be lessened by appointing other judges. There's another overall point about criticism, which is made by the Imre Emes, one of the great Gary Rebbe's. He was by a convention where they were trying to come up with some way to solve one of the Chinuch problems in Kali Yisrael. Whatever the plan was being offered, there was one person there who was just poking holes and demonstrating every fallacy with every single plan. So this Emriyamus finally approached him and told him, listen, we know that Yisrael was called Yeser because he added a parsha to the Torah. So Rashi says, you know which parsha he added? The parsha of the Atasechazeh, which is the Pasuk that says you should appoint judges. So he asked, why does Rashi begin from there? That's in the middle of Yisrael's speech to Moshe. Why doesn't he say that Yisrael added the parsha of It's not good what you're doing. That's where Yisrael started talking. So the man didn't have an answer. The Amos explained, simply saying what not to do, that's not helpful. And that wouldn't have merited Yisrael being heard at all. He wouldn't have had an extra parsha in the Torah. Only because he offered a plan. He troubled himself to come up with a viable solution was his criticism worth anything? The only parsha which merits being added is only when he begins to say the positive solution, which is va'ata sechaza. To quote the original Yiddish, nisht zogen is nishkenetza. Saying no is not advice. Have a good night and a wonderful Shabbos.